Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. With the holidays just around the corner, now is the time to order holiday cards for family and friends. Only this year, why not create custom holiday photo cards quickly, easily, and affordably at simplytoimpress.com. Simplytoimpress.com is your holiday photo card headquarters with thousands of unique Christmas cards and other designs to choose from. All you do is upload your family photos, personalize the text, and you're done. Simplytoimpress.com prints your cards on your choice of premium card stock in just a few days and rushes them straight to your door. Maybe that's why the New York Times wire cutter named Simply to Impress their favorite photo card service. They even offer foil cards and hundreds of great holiday card designs for your business, too. Place your order today to save 30% and get free shipping. Just enter promo code DEAL at checkout. Save big on holiday photo cards today using promo code DEAL at simplytoimpress.com. That's simplytoimpress.com. being the veteran that you are in the sports casting industry uh starting out growing up on the east coast new jersey uh new york area what what was the first thing that kind of uh, drew you to sports broadcasting and i guess sports in general as a young kid kind of saying okay like this is what i want to do for a living i want i want to watch this for a living and i also want to call the action while doing it for a living, I don't know. I mean, I knew right away that I loved sports, and my family didn't, so I was kind of different. Um, but I kind of recruited my brother and all my friends in the neighborhood, and we would play games in the backyard and put on the different helmets for the different teams and do batting stances and collect baseball cards and uh, play football and, and do all that stuff. And we we learned it all that way. You know, that was my basis of knowledge. and. Um, you know, I had relatives that would take me to a Yankee game or take me to a Nick game, things like that, so that I could re really uh, appreciate um, everything in, in person. And then when I got to high school and my high school basketball coach told me, hey, you know, I'm going to put you on the team, but you'll be the 12th man. You'll only get in the game if we're up or down by 30 points. Or here's a video camera. You can videotape the games and be of more use. We can scout ourselves. And I did that instead of playing. And that was the pathway to, for me because it had a microphone on the camera and I would sit there in the top row of the bleachers and call the game. I would make up rosters and, and the coaches took the tapes back and they said, Hey, you're really good at this. You should do this. So I looked at schools that had, you know, good communications programs and student radio stations. And I ended up at the university of Miami. And, and once I got there, I kind of knew that I had an aptitude for it and that I enjoyed it. And it didn't seem like work to me and I pursued it. So when your coach tells you that uh, you're going to be the 12th man or you, you can videotape the team kind of scout in a sense, is that a blessing in disguise for you? Like, did you enjoy that right off the bat or were you kind of hurt by that at the beginning? What was your mindset there? It was kind of a relief because the team, we had numerous division one players. We had a guy that was drafted in the second round of the NBA. We were, we were a good team, yeah. um, you know, urban district and I didn't play much. And um, it, it was good. You know, I could still be around the team and learn basketball and learn from a good coaching staff. And uh, I recruited 
a guy that was my friend then who became my brother-in-law down the line to actually hold the camera for me while I had the microphone. And, you know, it was a good experience. We got to see a lot of good teams and um, it was a blessing in disguise for sure. Wow. That's actually a neat story. He's him becoming your brother-in-law that way. And you said that your family wasn't into sports, like you were kind of different in that sense. Growing up, what was your family into? What were you kind of raised on? They were into politics. And that was my other major. At Miami, I think it's actually smart, and some other schools do this as well. They assume that you will not make it on the air as a broadcaster, so they make you take a second major um, as a a fallback plan. So I knew a lot about politics through my family. My mother had run for office. My father ran my town. Um, So it was a natural for me to do political science in addition to broadcasting. So I walked out with both degrees and I still have an interest in both, but um, yeah, I was able to pursue my own path. And, you know, I had an uncle that liked sports and stuff like that. So it was, it was good. Wow. So how was your uh, personality kind of infused kind of growing up in a family who was in politics in a sense, you wanting to be in sports or kind of influenced by sports at a young age, how quickly were you able to infuse and kind of uh, integrate your personality into your broadcast style or how long did that take before you kind of felt comfortable using it? You know, uh, it's been, it's been a long road. I mean, right away, you have to listen to your tapes. If you're going to get better, you have to pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, and that was hard because I didn't really like it. I mean, the last couple of years of my life, I really like watching my tapes back and listening to my tapes back because I'm at a point where I'm comfortable and I feel like, okay, this is, this is what I want to be. But it took me a long time to get to that. Uh, I would say my personality came out pretty early. And that's something that I tell the kids in my sports broadcasting camp and career days, like when I met you and um, different things. Um, you have to be you. you know, there's only one you, and that's what's going to separate you. And if you can identify that, and maximize that and and just be yourself that's going to help people you know gravitate to you and 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 identify you amongst a pack of others so you know i really recommend that so if you're if you're jolly be jolly if you're you know reserved be reserved like whatever it is that you do uh you know if you're a a dogged researcher and you come at people you know with a lot of facts and that's your thing do it you know there's probably a market for all of it. Uh, in college and in my first couple of years in minor league baseball, I was able to develop a style where I inject humor. I do a lot of preparation, uh, very specific in my play-by-play. So those became tenets of my speaking. Yeah, I'd say in a general sense, if you try to come off as somebody you're not, you're going to be exposed quickly, whether or not you're confident in doing it or not. Uh, starting out, though, did, was there anybody uh, like in your first you broadcasts that you ever did, did you try and mimic anybody that you you were inspired by growing up? Or did you know right off the bat that like, I got to be my own voice and I'm going to try and insert my own creativity into this? Uh, I was just trying to do the job. And I think if you do the job and you concentrate on the task at hand and you don't get in your own head too much, um, that you don't really think about it. Uh, there were obviously influences. I mean, I grew up in, in New York and I watched national broadcasts with some of my favorites like Bob Costas, Marv Albert, Mike Breen. Uh, Bill White was a big influence on me, the Yankee broadcaster from the 70s and 80s that was a former player. Um, I, I like people that were a little irreverent like Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann on SportsCenter. 
uh, were big influences in college. I would watch them every night. So uh, sports is the toy department of the newspaper, right? And, and of the broadcast. So you have to have fun and not take it too seriously. Do you feel like growing up a Yankee fan kind of in that era of all these great Yankee teams was a huge influence on you? Like, do you think it would have been different? Um, I mean, obviously you, you call all sports, basketball, baseball, just to name a few, but do you feel like growing up in that area with such great dynasty teams that it, it really influenced your love for sports? You know, I think it was more the broadcasters than the teams because the Yankees, when I grew up, were a mixed bag. You right. know, they'd have a good year, they'd have a bad year. Uh, I mean, I was in my 20s by the time they actually went on their run and their dynasty. And I got to go to a lot of those games, which was great. I was I was back home in New Jersey by then. Um, but to me, it was it was the announcers. You know, it was Phil Rizzuto uh, when John Sterling came on, um, Frank Messer, you know, as I mentioned, Bill White, uh, Mel Allen, even in the early 80s when he came back and did some games, uh, the famous voice of the Yankees. Um, and then the Mets announcers as well, you know, Bob Murphy and then my Seton Hall partner, Gary Cohen, um, you know, who I would listen to in high school and college. Um, some of the best, you know, New York gets the best broadcaster. So I was lucky where I grew up. Uh, a lot of those announcers were real pros and also broadcast nationally. So those people were influences more than the actual teams. And you mentioned some of these names, obviously you and Gary uh, going way back as well, uh, partnering at, at Seton Hall for those games. Who in your estimation, I mean, you can look at the Vince Scullys and the Dick Enbergs of the world, but like who in your estimation defines broadcasting in the industry? I mean, I think Vince Scully is the best broadcaster yeah. in sports that's, that's ever lived. Uh, I love John Miller as well. Uh, he's mainly a baseball announcer. He's done other sports, but he's fantastic. I mean, the guy's a, a, a genius, you know, he can quote Shakespeare and, you know, other languages and do accents and he's funny and he's, you know, a great sense of history and very dynamic calls. Like if John Miller's, you know, calling an RBI double, it doesn't sound like anybody else. It's like, here's a ball into the gap, rolling to the wall, Morgan around first. Morgan dives into second base and he's safe at second base and the run scores and the Orioles take a one nothing lead. He play acts it, you know, he, he sees it a second before the audience, you know, he can, he can synthesize it quickly and dramatize it. And, and a lot of announcers, you know, cannot do that. Well, Dan Schulman does that. Um, you know, there are some great ones out there. Ian Eagle. I love, you know, he's a friend of mine who's a New Jersey uh, resident now and is the number two guy at CBS. And he's amazing at every sport. He's so well-prepared and brings drama and humor and all that stuff. So, you know, I try to watch uh, the people that are the best. I don't copy them. Uh, I'm my own person, but, you know, I, I hopefully it all seeps in somewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're on a national level. They're there for a reason. Nobody can touch them in a sense. For you, um, we mentioned personality and creativity into it. What influences outside of sports or in sports, I guess, in a sense, have you used to kind of integrate that uh, personality and that personal touch as a broadcaster? Uh, I mean, music, Gary and I talk about music on the air a lot. I'm in bands. I, I'm a drummer and a singer. And um, so, you know, we'll talk about music and I have a pretty deep well on that. I can, I can go back, you know, fifties, sixties, seventies, whatever he wants to talk about. Um, you know, I, I like that. So it, it brings a, a richness to my life and I bring it to the broadcast as well. But I think anytime you're uh, a sportscaster, and I, I tell this to, to young announcers, don't just 
know that day's game. You know, know something about, you know, like the world map behind you. Know something about the world. You know, know something about geography and weather and injuries. And you can study 24 hours a day and, and not be the perfect broadcaster. But the broader your knowledge is, the better your vocabulary is, the more reps that you get in different circumstances, the better and more useful you're going to be to your audience, the more enjoyable uh, you'll be because uh, you're going to bring variety. Um, you never know what people like. You know, people might like food. They might like birds. They might like whatever. And things happen in the game where you can reference these things if you're a good broadcaster, like whether it's a name, a location where you are. Like last night we were in Kingston, Rhode Island. I slipped in there that it was uh, founded in the 17th century in a national historic district just to give people a feel of where we were, um, that it wasn't just some random arena. Right. And you mentioned vocabulary there. I think one of the biggest things uh, I personally am learning as a young aspiring broadcaster in college, and they teach us this at the school as well, is to not lean on certain crutches, they say, certain words that you kind of use over and over again. I probably have like 24 of them that I'm trying to get over right now. You as a, as a young broadcaster uh, growing up in the industry, what were some of the uh, sayings that you think you'd say over and over again, and how did you slowly overcome that and, uh, like you said, like adapt and, and expand your vocabulary? Feedback from people, listening back to tapes. I would always say, indeed, as a, as a, <laughs> as a reply to my partner. Um, so one day, you know, off the air, my partner, Jim, would just walk around and say, indeed, indeed, <laughs> and just like try to beat it out of me. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I've had that many over the years. Uh, there's always ums, there's always you knows, uh, there's always um, different things that you have to try to overcome. It's really allowing yourself to speak freely and not pause unneedlessly, needlessly, right. and be able to just let it flow. Um, and and all, all that comes with reps. It comes with reading. Um, it comes with just doing it. Like this is a job where you just have to do it and you have to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, I feel like repetition is the most important thing. The, the more reps you get and the more consistent you are on a schedule basis, the easier it becomes in a sense. Do you feel like, I mean, at this point in your career, probably not, but uh, at a young age, did you feel like if you weren't getting the reps on a consistent basis, it was very hard to get in a good rhythm? Absolutely. That's why I did as many games as I could at Miami. I did 200 games there, graduated, drove to Sioux City because I knew that I was going to be on every day there for like five or six hours. I did a general interest talk show. Then we did the pregame. Then we did the game. Then we did the postgame. And we were on easily five hours a night, every night. So at that point, you sink or swim. You're going to get better or you're going to drop out of the business. Yeah. And I got better. <laughs> so I stayed in the business and I did that for three summers there. Then I moved up to AAA in Des Moines and I just, I wanted, baseball is great because you have to speak extemporaneously. You have to tell stories. It, that's the mark of a true sportscaster to me. I mean, all of the other sports are a science. Baseball is an art. Baseball, there's more time, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's this pace, it's slow, it's laborious. The person's taking a long time to throw pitches and then boom, all hell breaks loose and there's a three run triple and, you know, people, there's a rundown and you have to really um, 
value the pitch and be ready for that excitement when it happens because it doesn't happen that much right. in the game. So baseball is a real test, and I always enjoyed that, and that made me better. How many sports have you called overall? Because obviously I'd say basketball is your bread and butter right now, obviously a big passion as a baseball fan, but how many sports have you called overall? I think a dozen. Uh, indoor lacrosse was the hardest. I did that on radio one time, and it was like trying to call pinball. It was ridiculous. It was so fast, and we were very removed from the field, um, like up on the first or second level. So it was hard to see the numbers. It was like if broadcasters have broadcast nightmares, like you would have a test nightmare for college. That's one of them. That was hard. Field hockey was hard. Regular hockey was hard. I'm not a hockey person, mm -hmm. so and lacrosse is like hockey. So all of those were difficult for me. Um, football is a different kind of challenge because there's so many numbers to memorize. And if you don't have a spotter or maybe you don't have a statistician, there's really a lot for the play-by-play -play announcer to do. Um, so, but yeah, I've, I've done a million of them. I did volleyball, um, softball. I, I, my first gig was I did sidelines for a lifeguard tournament on the beach in Seagirt. Wow. So what, what does that entail? What is a lifeguard tournament? Oh, you have like Asbury Park versus Belmar. You have like maybe six or eight lifeguard crews that enter this tournament and they, they row boats and they swim and they drag people out of the water and they're graded. It's almost like the, uh, the Olympics yeah. where there's all these different right. events. And then they come out of the water, they're wet, they're sweaty, they're leaning on you. You try to ask them a question, they're out of breath. It was I, I, it was just discouraging, but <laughs> it's a good experience. Yeah, I was going to say the lifeguard Olympics right there. I mean, that's that's probably got to be so difficult slash frustrating to call on certain events. Like it, it, it's all over the place. I'm sure. Yeah, there's there's I don't see many of those televised anymore. This was <laughs> many years ago on local cable, and uh, the the play by play announcers were up on the boardwalk, and I'd do my interview, and I'd toss it back to them, and they'd get ready for the next event. It was just. A Jersey Shore kind of thing. I mean, it's an experience for sure. How competitive was it at the University of Miami growing up in, in, in the school? Like how many different people went into Miami pursuing what you wanted to pursue? I mean, there were a couple hundred doing communications, but the actual sports department uh, of WVUM, the radio station, was maybe 25 or 30 people. Um, and all of these people were trying out to be update anchors and football announcers. I mean, our football team was the best at that point. I think we won two national championships, almost three in my four years. So every game was a big game. We were playing Florida State and Penn State and BC. And, uh, you know, it, it was great, amazing experience. And baseball was, was the thing because the baseball team was popular. You needed to get two or 3,000 people to college baseball down there. And we did every game on the student station so people followed us if they really wanted to follow the team. And you had to try out for the baseball staff. So only like five announcers out of like 30 would make the baseball staff. So that was a lot of pressure. I did not make it my first year. We had these, I mean, we had great announcers. This guy, Todd Wright, that was on ESPN. Dan Lebetard, who's obviously on ESPN. Uh, a number of other people that went on to announce professionally. But by my sophomore year, I made it. And that was like, that's what did it for me, honestly, because once I did that and I got 20 or 30 games and I got to be with better announcers and learn from them and get reps, that's what really lit the fire. 
was it a close community or was it more of every man for himself in a sense? Because I feel like in the, in the sports broadcasting industry in general, I mean, you're gracious enough to talk to me right now. I feel like it's overall a very nice industry to work in when it comes to making connections and making those relationships with people. Was it at, in school, like I said, like a free for all or were you kind of like close knit with some people? No, it, it was positive. It yeah. was positive. And um, everybody was, was pretty, um, I don't want to say nurturing, but supportive of everyone else. Uh, competitive, yes, but not unfriendly. Uh, and sportscasting in general, people are very collegial. Uh, I, I love sportscasters. And uh, I think, you know, sportscasters are generally very kind uh, with with their time and, and their talent. And um, it's a good group. And, and what it takes to be a sportscaster is transferable. You know, I, I tell this to people like, if you give me somebody that's good at play-by-play, that person could do a lot of different jobs. Yeah. Like a, a lot of things because you have to multitask. You have to think on your feet. You have to research. Like all the things that go into being good at just about anything, you know, being a lawyer, being a teacher, any of that stuff, you, ha- you need that to be a good play-by-play announcer and to communicate to a wide audience. So um, yeah, I'm very... I'm very bullish on sportscasters in general. The sportscasting industry, very tough, you know, okay. because there's not that many people um, like Jim Nance that make it and are negotiating for $15 million contracts. Those are very, very rare. The rest of us, you know, are out there just slugging it out and saying yes to pretty much any gig that we can get just to stay, you know, afloat. Right. And you've been with Seton Hall now, what, 17 years? Yeah, this is my 18th, uh, kind of a happy accident. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I mean, talking about some of those situations where someone just finds a fit somewhere, and like you said, kind of going from job to job early on, but now going on 18 years with Seton Hall. At the beginning, did you feel like it was going to be a, a good relationship from the start, or did, did it kind of escalate like, okay, like I'll do this year, I'll do this year, I'll do this year, and then it kind of just formulated into you becoming their, their basketball voice? Yeah, you, ju- you just want to get the, through the first game in the first year so that they like you and they bring you back. And then once they do that a couple times, uh, you develop a little bit of comfort, but you can't have too much comfort in this business because, um, you know, there's a guy that, you know, I, I follow Mike Wilner, uh, who was my friend, Ben Wagner's partner in Toronto. He had done nothing wrong. He was a radio announcer for the blue Jays. They just fired him. And he had been there for like 15 or 20 years and they're going to bring in a player. They just wanted a different direction. And there's nothing you can do about that. You know? So now he's out there looking for a job and the guy's been in the big leagues for a long time. So, um, with Seton Hall, Gary and I clicked right away. Um, I'm a play-by-play announcer by trade. They hired me to be the color commentator. So 90, 95% of the games I'm doing color and not play-by-play. Mm-hmm. So that was a learning process for me. Uh, but I think, you know, because I had done it in college and uh, in baseball, you have to do color for each other. Um, you know, one's doing play-by-play, the other does color. So I had done color and I just tried to treat it like, um, if you're watching a game on TV, you see the crawl, you see stats, you see replays, you see things that um, the audience on radio can't see. So if the play-by-play gives you A, B, and C, and, and who, I want to give you why, you know, and I want to give you what just happened uh, and, and provide a different perspective. So once I thought about it in that way, it was a, it was a pretty easy transition for me, and I've, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it's cool because you've actually gotten to 
grow in a sense with Gary. I mean, him obviously doing baseball with the Mets on SNY for as many years as he have as as he has, and then you with Seton Hall. Has it been very cool in a sense watching you two kind of grow as broadcasters as well as human beings? Yeah, and, and I think we've both um, we've both changed and and grown, and uh, you know we're we're friends now. We we were just you know thrown together um, 18 years ago, uh, didn't know each other. I had interviewed him maybe once or twice on my sports talk shows in Iowa uh, through a, a mutual connection, yeah. but we didn't know each other. Um, and we made the best of it and clicked. And I think we, we both have the same sensibilities. Um, you know, if we um, listen to another broadcast uh, and, you know, hear an announcer not identifying the players, not giving directionality, not giving the scores. We just shake our head because you have to value the listener and you have to bring them there. If, they, if they're listening to a radio broadcast on AM radio these days, they really care about the team. They care about that game. They want to know exactly what's going on and what's happened that they've missed so far. So you have to do all of that and, and be buttoned up and be very prepared. We share all of those sensibilities so that relationship has been uh, an easy one. And um, it's been a good learning experience for me because he's obviously, you know, one of the best in the business in, in baseball or basketball. Um, so that's a, that's a luxury for me to be a part of a crew like that. Right. And being there as long as you have, how do you feel that, or how do you feel um, your relationship is with the fan base? I mean, being there as long as you have been a part of so many different eras of Seton Hall basketball, what's your relationship like with the fans? Did it grow over time? Were there people critical at first? And then now, because at this point, you know, like you're their voice. Yeah. I mean, I think it helps that, that Gary is speaking 80% of the time and people right. love him and he does a great job and, and I can't mess it up too much. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, we really have not gotten any negative criticism in the 18 wow. years that I know of. I, I haven't seen it. If it's out there, God bless them. But I think, you know, 90 plus percent of the people like what we do. The school likes what we do. Learfield IMG are good bosses. They technically hire us and sell all the time and uh, set up the radio deal and all that. And they, you know, we get along great with them. So it's been a, a good marriage and, um, you know, hopefully we'll, We'll do it for a long time. Last year, we celebrated our 500th game together, which was fun. Wow. And, I mean, you two complement each other so well on the broadcast. You mentioned being the color analyst. And it's not necessarily, like, what you sign up to do when you, you want to be a broadcaster, especially because the color analyst, in most cases, is a former athlete who, who can, like, explain, like, from experience what's going on on the court or on the field or, or whatever. How, how quickly or slowly, in a sense, did you – gain a passion for a color analyst or do you still have a, have some sort of passion for being a color analyst as opposed to play by play? I think I like them both almost equally. Um, I, I like play by play because that's what I grew up with. And um, I kind of prepare my card still uh, my broadcast card um, as if I'm doing the game play by play, because I really want to uh, be able to identify the players quickly and and find things you know i don't want to have to think differently uh game to game i just i talk at a different time and i and i say something a little bit different you know i i just try to gary draws the lines and i try to literally color it in so like last night uh, i mentioned that there were no fans at the game the navy blue seats stood out there were football jerseys 
uh, on the seats behind the basket and card cardboard cutouts right. of the dance team. Um, and just to paint the picture of, and this is kind of weird, this is kind of stark. You know, I said, we're the only media members in the arena. So that gave people a picture. Wow, this is, this is kind of an inside look to something that, you know, not many people are getting right now. Um, so, you know, while Gary was calling baskets and, and doing all that stuff, I was trying to bring some of that other stuff. You know, I congratulated Romaro Gill for signing with the Utah Jazz yesterday. That wasn't necessarily involved, you know, in today's game, but it brought some context and some texture for a Seton Hall fan uh, to that game that may not have seen that on Twitter. So, you know, I think it's my job to do the other stuff, you know, to, oh, yeah. to throw in a funny line and to, uh, to do the instant replay thing. Do you prefer radio over TV? Because yes, you have to talk a lot more, but at the same time, I feel like it's easier explaining everything that's in front of you and painting a picture for the audience, like you said. I generally grew up in radio. I think I do prefer that. That's a difficult question because TV is an interesting challenge. It's totally different. Um, the announcers are more 50-50 in the way that they talk because the play-by-play -play announcer doesn't have to say as much. You can see so much of it. You know, I might just say, Jones, Smith, Right. That's two. Instead of Jones dribbles with the left hand, passes to the left side, bounces to the left block, you know, shot off the glass. Good. Seton Hall takes a two nothing lead. So much more in radio right. than TV. So, um, but I like the challenge of TV because it's a crew of 20, 25, 30 people. It's more of a team sport. Uh, you have all kinds of things coming at you that you have to filter statisticians and stage managers and producer and director. And I'm listening to my partner kind of concentrate on what I'm going to say. Oh, by the way, and watching the monitor, which is really more important than watching the court, because that's what the people at home see. You don't want to talk about something on the court if they're not seeing it on the TV monitor. So that's been an education learning how to do that. And uh, that only comes with reps. I think uh, really, um, dividing your brain, dividing your listening. Right. Al Michael says he watches the monitor with one eye and the field with another eye. I don't know how he does that. Right. But, you know, it's, it's a different challenge. I like TV also. Have you ever had a director or producer in your ear during a big moment in a game where you kind of had to do what, what you said, like keep one eye on the court, another like your ear uh, on the producer? Were there ever moments where it was like, oh, my God, like now is not a great time. But at the same time, you know that he's directing the broadcast and you got to go with the flow. Rare. Uh, I would say the times that it's been most challenging is it's the end of the show. Yeah. And we have to determine where it's going next. Am I throwing it to Cincinnati, to Andrew Catalan and Steve Lapis? Or am I throwing it to break? Am I throwing it to the studio? Sometimes those decisions are made snap judgment because yeah. of timing. The other game is they're waiting on the court. They have to tip or, or not. You know, they're still in the huddles. So we can take a 30-second timeout before we go to the next game. So those kind of transitions are tougher. Most of the time during a big play, the, the producer and director know not to talk to me right. <laughs> or, any, or any announcer. And generally, like if they want me to do something coming up, they'll talk to me while my partner is talking, not while I'm talking. Right. The good ones. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I've worked with a lot of good ones. So it hasn't been a huge issue. But usually those transitional type things when we have to change the closing copy, you know, it might be 40 seconds of closing copy that they hand you and they'll say, you're off the air in 15, 12, 10. Right. And you have to like 
really condense that down, make it sound smooth, and throw it to whatever's next. That takes practice. Yeah, with like a timer, like a timer clock uh, in the process too. Uh, to go back to um, your earlier days again, we talked about the University of Miami and obviously working in minor league baseball too, which has kind of resulted in you uh, pursuing other things outside of broadcasting in a sense in, in the marketing and media uh, world as well with, with Hilltop. And do you feel like, I don't know, wearing all those different hats in minor league baseball, not only being a play-by-play voice for a team, but at the same time working in sales and marketing concessions, et cetera, in minor league baseball, wearing all those different hats has kind of uh, propelled you into pursuing all this other stuff and having a passion for it. Yes. Not only hats, but I had to wear the mascot costume. Yeah. <laughs> Pull tarp on the field. Um, yes. I had just wrapped up a couple of years at the Newark Bears as the assistant general manager where I was doing everything, hiring people, um, doing PR, you know, supervising marketing and the game presentation and um, doing the games every day, home and away. So I was, I've never worked more than I did in that job. And I got good at a lot of different things and um, learned a lot of different skill sets just because I had to. So after that, um, I was unemployed for like two weeks and people that um, I worked for previously at the Nets um, called me up and they said, Hey, we're starting this sports marketing agency and we need somebody who can do a lot of different things. You know, we need somebody that can write, they can speak, they can do PR, uh, that can, um, you know, be a jack of all trades. We're a small company. So I said, I can do it. So I came in, they had an indoor lacrosse team at the Meadowlands and I did a lot, you know, I sold, I did PR, uh, we did all kinds of set up the broadcast deal. Um, you know, worked with the radio and TV announcers, a lot, you know, and, and doing all those different jobs helped us, um, get other clients in sports and entertainment and nonprofits. And, you know, it just kind of grew and grew and grew and you meet more people and you get referred after you do a good job. And, uh, after a couple of years of doing that, I became one of the owners of the company and did that for 10 years before starting my newest company, which is almost eight years old now. So, um, it's all very similar, you know, I mean, managing a, a nonprofit, you know, 5,000 person walk is not that different from managing a baseball game where there's 5,000 people there. Uh, you still need to entertain them and feed them and provide parking and bathrooms and um, emergency plans and, right. and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, MCs and it, it's pretty much the same. Now, did you develop a passion for that over time or was, cause obviously wanting to be a play-by-play voice in minor league baseball, you like, this is part of the job. You have to do this stuff. But did you develop a passion for it right away or did it take some time for you to develop that passion and want to pursue your own things as, as a result of that? I liked it right away. It kind of felt like the same thing to me, especially since we were managing a team. That was like our first gig at the agency is we were managing a pro team um, in the National Lacrosse League. So it wasn't that different. And then when we started doing uh, marketing and sales for Seton Hall Athletics, their staff was very small at the time. Um, this was a long time ago. You know, they have many more people that work for the athletic department and Learfield now, people that sell the sponsorships for them. We were doing all that. You know, we were selling their group tickets. We were doing their brochures and their advertising campaign. I was managing like a, you know, whatever, $150,000 advertising budget for them and placing the ads and working with a designer and, and all that. So it was still sports and it was still kind of the same. Um, 
So it was fine. Like I, I needed to make a living. It was a good, um, it gave me flexibility because I was one of the principals. So if I said, hey, I got to go to Omaha to do a game today, what are they going to say? <laughs> I'm going to Omaha and I'll just, I'll work on my laptop or whatever. So um, being in the agency business and not working for someone for a long time has given me the ability to drop everything when it comes time for the NCAA tournament and disappear, you know, for two weeks because, you know, I've got my phone, I've got the laptop. And as, as everybody's seeing now with the pandemic, you can do your work from just about anywhere in like 90% of jobs. I mean, that, that's totally true. Do you think the uh, industry is going to change in that sense, seeing how successful in a way that, you know, Zoom calls or, or working from a monitor is? Like, could you see potentially more broadcasts uh, taking place uh, with you guys not even having to leave your homes in a sense? Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the great things that I like about sportscasting is the people, um, you know, getting to meet people and learn from them and travel to new places. And um, yesterday when I did the game in Rhode Island, I got there a little early so I could walk around Newport, Rhode Island for an hour because I love it there. Um, so those are the, those are the fringe benefits of, of doing this job. And if I had to do it from this room all the time, I don't think I would like it uh, quite as much. There was already a trend, uh, a little bit with Fox, definitely with ESPN, where announcers were remote. 10, maybe 20% of the time, you wouldn't even know it sometimes, uh, except for that they didn't show them in their stand-up at the beginning, or maybe they've set a background behind them. Um, but now it's it's many games, you know what I mean? Except for some of the Bubbleville games, I think almost all the games that ESPN's doing right now, the announcers are remote. They're either in the studio or in their own homes. Uh, so, And it's obviously cheaper for ESPN to do that instead of sending people on the road. They do thousands and thousands of games a year across all of their platforms. So, you know, multiply that by a thousand every time you send somebody on the road to put them in a hotel, uh, you know, fly them out there, pay for their expenses. I, I hope that announcers still get to go to the games because you learn things on site that you cannot learn um, in the studio. Um, talking to the coaches, talking to the trainer, talking to the other announcers. I mean, it's, it's much harder to do it, first of all, just watching a monitor, but to learn all of those nuggets and to make the broadcast a valuable one to the audience. I mean, you can just call who's on the field, but you don't get that texture unless you're there. All right. I mean, I could see for the bigger games, big playoff scenarios where that's not even a question. Like you have to be there. But I could see for regular season games where it's not necessarily necessary for you guys just to be calling games from home because it's worked out so well to this point. Yeah. I mean, I think you're going to see it. Uh, I'm glad that I'm uh, in the middle and toward the end of my career instead of at the beginning because I wouldn't want to have to do that for 40 years. I mean, I guess it's going to become the new normal, but uh, I certainly prefer being there. So growing up in in the business, in, in minor league baseball, mid-20s, kind of trying to pave your way, pave your own path, uh, from a personal standpoint, how difficult was it kind of sacrificing personal stuff in order to achieve all of those things? Because in minor league baseball, you're jumping from town to town, city to city, uh, not much room for a personal life in a sense. How were you able to juggle all of that? Yeah, it was a big sacrifice. It was difficult. Um, I mean, I was together with uh, my wife, then my girlfriend at Miami, and then instead of just coming home and the long distance thing being over, I said, oh, by the way, I'm going to Iowa for the summer. Um, and then kind of kept doing that for five years. Um, so I would work for the Nets, sell tickets in the winter, six, seven months, 
and then disappear for six months. Um, and my wife is a teacher, so she'd get to come out for a month or come out for two weeks or come out for you know some period of time. Uh, but it was very, very difficult. And um, I'm kind of surprised that we survived it. And 30 years later, uh, we're still together because you miss a lot of birthdays and funerals and weddings and uh, important events um, that other people do not. Um, so you have to really love it and you have to really uh, be in it for the long haul. Um, otherwise, it's not worth it. Um, but by and large, I, I wouldn't change it. You know, it's brought a richness uh, to my life. You know, just the ability to to go to 46 of the 50 states and a lot of foreign countries and um, work with some great people and um, and do something that I enjoy every day. Like I bounce out of bed every day still. Um, and you know, I I found a new appreciation for it. You know, last week I hadn't done a game for like eight months because of the pandemic able to do Seton Hall again. And, and I like it even more now because it's a good creative outlet and um, it's something fun. So um, it is a lot of sacrifice. And if you want a nine to five, and if you want a regular life, don't do it. I mean, I was going to ask, and you explained it perfectly, was if you were able to change it in any way, would you? Because it is a part of your story now. Like, you were able to battle all of that adversity, like you mentioned, uh, getting through with that with your wife and your marriage and all of that stuff personally. I mean, it, it's part of history now. Like, you wouldn't want to change that because those hard times made you who you are today. And uh, given all of the success you've had in the industry, like, why change it? I, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, I, I think that it was difficult, but I wouldn't change it. And it, it allows me to step onto the air with Gary Cohen and be able to hang because I've, I've had 2,000 reps, you know, of games and, you know, have had to be, I've had to have games canceled due to pandemics and floods and hurricanes and um, you name it. Like, I've just kind of been through it and been hardened by it in a good way. Um, so that I feel like I can jump into pretty much any broadcast circumstance. If you just said, Hey, you know, two days from now, or one day from now, uh, you have to go and cover, uh, the inauguration, um, in Washington, I would do my research. I would go down and I would do it. I mean, it's just like covering any other event. Um, so I think all of my experiences has, has made that possible. Would that be exciting for you if you got that call or would it just be another day? Oh, very exciting, harrowing, because it's so different from what I do every day. But um, especially if it's live and, you know, they throw it to you, you have to throw it back to, you know, somebody else over at the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, it's a lot of thinking on your feet and really being on edge. It's a huge adrenaline rush. Um, you know, normally um, it takes me an hour or two to come down from a broadcast um, because you're just, it's a heightened level of awareness. And, um, and I miss that. You know, so yes, I mean, I think it would be very exciting to do any of those new kinds of opportunities. Like if somebody said to me, uh, you have to go call boxing tomorrow, I'd figure it out. You know, I would say yes, and I would go do it because it's something new and um, I want to keep my mind fresh. You know, I really want to, I want new challenges. During, obviously when the pandemic started back in March, everything was shut down. Everybody was in lockdown, especially back in the New York, New Jersey area. I know I was in my house for a few months there. Did you feel, because me as, an, as a young broadcaster, obviously I had time to kind of like rethink how I want to 
portray myself and kind of get all my stuff together. You being a veteran, uh, like you said, in the middle towards the latter stages of your career, did you want to try and change anything during that time or was it more about just getting repetition, just waiting to get back in the realm of things? No, I just wanted to get back. And I just think every year, um, try to bring more humanity to it, you know, and try to be more grateful and uh, try to be in a good mood. Um, it's sports, it's fun. You know, the, the people want to have fun. Um, they don't remember the stat that you gave. They remember the, the cool story that you told. Um, you know, they remember the funny lion that you had the next day. Um, always, always. Um, nobody will say, oh yeah, that was great when you talked about, you know, so-and-so's free throw percentage. Uh, I just try to bring more and more of myself and more humanity and, and what I've learned just being an adult, being a person uh, to the broadcast, I think that that helps the connection. How important do you think it is humanizing things on on a broadcast in a sense of like, yeah, you're 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 setting it up for the listeners, which is first and foremost, but at the same time, you're trying to be as personable as possible, and like you said, like being yourself on the air as opposed to someone else, because people will you know, like you'll be exposed, like people will see it right away. Uh, that certain amount of fakeness, like how important is it? for you to be as personal as possible with the fan base that's listening and then the people that you interact with after games. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I think that I am uh, definitely working on that. And I think it is important um, just for me as the announcer, but more importantly, um, people are not watching for me. They're watching for the players. They're watching for their team. So like, for example, last night I was talking about Sandro Mamukelishvili who is Seton Hall's best player. He scored 25 points last night. So there were a lot of opportunities to talk about Sandro. And I talked about him coaching the younger players in the huddle and being positive with them. I said, I made a joke. This guy's going to make a lot of money. I want to be his agent. Um, you know, just to give people the idea that I really respect him and I think he's going to have a pro career. Um, so, you know, I had a bunch of different little comments about Sandro throughout the broadcast because I want people to like Sandro and I want people to root for him because he is a really good guy. You know, I wouldn't do that if he was a total jerk. Uh, but Seton Hall has some good players this year in that way. You know, they're good people. Um, so I think the fans become more avid uh, for the product if they really, you know, take that player into their heart. You know, so that's part of my job. It's, it's, and this is where, you know, to your point from before, it's a sales job. Like broadcasting is a sales job. Why? You know, Go out and buy tickets. Watch the game on the, you know, on TV. Listen to the game on the radio. It's all about, you know, it's sales. You know, life is sales in some ways, but especially sports. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a money business. So, you want people to develop avidity uh, and frequency to your product. You know, and and you're talking to different kinds of people. You're talking to older and younger people. You're talking to male and female. So different things that I say will click with different audiences. So you have to vary um, the, what you bring to the table and what you bring to the broadcast. You know, me talking about him in the huddle, you know, some guy might not care about that, you know, but some grandma might say, oh, he's so cute. And, and, I, and I want everybody, you know, I, I, I want everybody in the village to kind of appreciate him and, and the team. Now, as a veteran broadcaster and as a veteran at Seton Hall as well at this point, uh, given that you've been in so many different eras of Seton Hall basketball, how how easy or difficult has it been building those uh, rapports, those relationships with players? Have you had any difficulties? Because college athletes, for me personally, some are great, 
some aren't so great, you know, from a personal standpoint. Uh, do, you, do you feel like you've had a good relationship with most players that you've uh, called for? Yeah, I mean, I try to. We don't have too much access to the players, honestly. Uh, when we go on the road, you know, we see them a little bit can talk to them in, you know, waiting for the plane or uh, at the team meal. I get invited to the team meal. So sometimes I get to talk to the guys there uh, in the lobby of the hotel, things like that. Uh, I would say that every year uh, with Kevin Willard, the guys have gotten more approachable, more human. Um, we, we had some characters back in the day, you know, with Bobby Gonzalez, uh, guys that had been arrested. Um, you know, guys that were driving the wrong way on the Garden State Parkway at midnight, um, breaking into houses, different things like crazy stuff. Like the, the character level was not super high with some of the student athletes. So um, I'm glad that that is over. This is a really good group. Last year's team was my favorite team uh, we've had uh, in that respect. Miles Powell, Sandro, Jared Roden, you know, good families, good kids. Um, spent time with the fans, signing autographs, talking with them, doing interviews, uh, recognizing their role in the university community and in the Big East. So uh, the last couple of years have been the most enjoyable in that regard. The guys will talk. You know, I, I loan books to Romaro Gill, who just graduated. He's a really smart kid. He was like a Big East scholar athlete. Um, you know, he's, he's great. You know, so Yes. Um, and, and it makes it much more enjoyable you know, when the coaches and players, you know, can be that way. Well, that's good now. I mean, to kind of go back to those past years, like you mentioned, some of the off-court issues, how hard is it explaining those things on air if you have to? Like, for example, at uh, Grand Canyon University, we just fired Dan Morley as our men's basketball coach. They don't let us talk about him whatsoever. Like, it's a big no-no. Like, how 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 often do you kind of have to hold back or is it kind of like the gloves are off in a sense when you have to bring certain stuff up? Yeah. I mean, we're there as reporters, but we're also employees of the school. So it's a different um, dynamic. Uh, it's, it's hard sometimes. Like last night, there was no press conference for our coach after the game. He didn't do a zoom. Um, so the only quotes that the reporters could get was off of our radio post game show and the questions that we asked. So we had to ask enough credible questions that, uh, you know, first of all, our, our radio audience, you know, could get his perspective, but also, you know, the print audience, um, you know, could get, you know, some quotes from the coach because otherwise the quotes wouldn't exist. Um, so there's some responsibility there, but our main responsibility is to Learfield and to Seton Hall. Um, so, I mean, if they tell us, don't say something about this, we wouldn't but they generally do not do that to Gary and me. Uh, if a guy sprained his ankle and he's out three weeks, we say he sprained his ankle and he's out three weeks. Um, you know, I mean, if it's something more sensitive, like what you were you know, talking about, things that happened 10 years ago uh, with Seton Hall, you have, to, you have to dance around it and just say, hey, you know, so-and-so has been suspended for uh, an off-court situation. Um, you know, it's obviously out there in the media and you can find it for yourself, but he won't be playing you know, for the next month for Seton Hall. Here's the starting lineup, and you just go into the game. And uh, there's ways that you can do it so that um, you don't get in trouble. But I, I think it's unfortunate that you guys aren't allowed to talk uh, about Dan Marley because he built the program there. And, and whatever happened, that's a shame um, that he wouldn't still be part of the history because he was Grand Canyon basketball. I mean, he's, he was the face of the franchise, basically, face of everything that we put out from, a, from an athletic standpoint on all of our social media pages. And now it's just like a ghost, like we can't talk about him. And he, he's, he's like the heart and soul of Phoenix, too, so it's kind of hard. 
Yeah, that's like state media. That's hard. And and I have actually been in your gym before. I was doing a CIT game. Um, I think it was on CBS Sports Network. And that was one of the best home court advantages I've ever seen. Like the fans there are awesome. The students, uh, I had a great experience there. Um, obviously, like explosive growth with your school and all that stuff. But um, the basketball part of it, the team kept getting better. The, the, the fan base, I mean, the, it was really a fun environment. Oh, I mean, the fans are our driving point. We're kind of taking a hit with that right now. You mentioned all the, all the cutouts of uh, standees that we kind of have to bring into the, the crowd in order to fill up seats. We got ASU coming in next week, which is like the biggest game in our franchise to this point, And we're only going to have like 250 seats available, which is kind of lame because our fans maybe could have uh, made a difference in that game against the Sun Devils, given it's the first time that they've actually agreed to come to GCU, which is actually pretty cool. Yeah, no, that's great. And, uh, you know, I've seen them a couple times already uh, this year. Um, ranked team, Bobby Hurley. It's very exciting. Good luck. We're going to need it. We're going to need all the luck we can get. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you got a call that you got to uh, do later today. But the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was the camp because you get to work with, with kids who are aspiring uh, young broadcasters if they want to pursue it because it is a young age for most of these kids. How fulfilling is it for you uh, doing that in a sense? And how early on did you think about uh, doing that after, of course, being a veteran in the industry, wanting to share that knowledge with uh, young kids? I actually got into it from a management perspective, not really from a teaching perspective. I just happened to be a sportscaster. A friend of mine, Dave Sirotti, owns the Sports Broadcasting Camp, which you can check out at sportsbroadcastingcamp.com. Um, and we just did a virtual session uh, in November, we did another one in July. We usually do it in person. Um, I got involved when Bruce Beck and Ian Eagle were the names on the camp and the main teachers. And I would handle a lot of the logistics and deal with parents and kids and make sure we had lunch on time and, um, you know, audiovisual issues and things like that. But it, over time, you know, I started to teach a little bit as well. And then the last couple of years, uh, I've been the name on the camp and have been one of the main teachers. Um, and that has been very fulfilling. Uh, this past July was probably um, my favorite week of this year. We had 66 kids and um, they were great, you know, and I really enjoyed the interaction. I enjoyed teaching them. I think they got a lot out of it. We got a lot of good parent feedback. Uh, some of them go into the business. Some of them don't. We've had a lot of success stories. Some of them broadcast in college and then they say, hey, I'm not quite good enough. Let me work behind the camera or let me go into PR or let me do something else. But the experience itself has been important uh, for a lot of kids. So to be able to do that, oh, we're going into our 20th year of camp and my 18th. So um, we've been able to uh, impact hundreds of kids, you know, particularly in New Jersey, but also now across the country. We had kids from you know, many states uh, in our last session because it's virtual. So uh, I enjoy it. I recommend it to anybody that wants to get their kid out of the shell, somebody that's into sports center that just wants to develop communication skills. It's, it's a good situation. What are some of the specific things that you teach at the camp, like on a day-to-day -day basis? We teach some mechanics, you know, of, of interviewing, how to stand, um, how to speak on the camera, how to prepare your questions, how to, you know, go with the flow during the interview and listen so that, you know, 
whatever the next thing is you might have on your script. I might have said some blockbuster, you know, answer that you need to follow up on. Um, so you really need to pay attention um, to that. And, you know, we talk about basic things like we, we came up with a 20% rule, which says, you know, if in normal conversation, you just talk like this, hey, Jack, you know, what's going on? Everything's cool, you know, whatever. But if I'm doing this and I'm doing a Zoom, that's not 50% more, that's 20% more. It's a little bit more energy. You can definitely hear what I'm saying. You know, if a word is important enough to say on the air, you have to enunciate it, you have to project, and you have to make sure that the audience understands what you're talking about. You know, and then we go through basics of play-by-play, left and right, score and situation, you know, what to think about, you know, as you're on the air, what does the audience want to know? You know, we hope that after the camp, they go and they, they watch games differently and listen to games differently and say, oh, that's why they're doing that. That's what Dave talked about in camp. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing there was kind of showing a sense of urgency, showing that passion, showing that energy that you have. I, I think the biggest problem young broadcasters have when they first get uh, going is showing uh, that energy. Like for me personally, being as monotone as heck early on, that was probably my biggest struggle. Uh, looking back at some of the tape from a few years back, I'm just like, man, like why would anybody want to listen to this? What, what do you think has been the biggest success story out of the camp that, that you've seen? You mentioned some of the success stories, guys going into college. Uh, what was the biggest success story coming out of camp? Uh, Noah Eagle, but he had other help. You know, <laughs> he's the voice of the Clippers right now. We went to camp one year, but his dad has coached him his whole life. Uh, Scott Braun is on MLB and NHL networks. Uh, Katie Corrado is a reporter on Channel 11 in New York. Uh, Jesse Kirsch does the news in Chicago. Uh, we have a lot of big market people. Um, the two guys that do the field announcing uh, for the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, like the on-field announcing, Justin Antwell and Brian Clark, they were both camp guys, and they both do national radio now for Westwood One and ABC, respectively. Um, we've had a lot, you know, and then a lot of our counselors that were, like, young, that kind of were learning but also teaching at the same time when they were teenagers or in college. Jared Greenberg is on NBA TV and TNT. Ed Cohen is the voice of the Knicks. Um, you know, we have all kinds of people that were, you know, great connections through the camp that are, that are now announcers. Craig D'Amico, my buddy, is one of the teachers now at camp. He was a camper way back in the day. He does Northeast Conference games. So, yeah, like hundreds of kids have gone on to, like, broadcast for minor league hockey and baseball and college teams and do their own podcasts. So it's been cool. Do you feel like some of these kids going in uh, are kind of half knowledgeable or the ones that are completely like, oh, I'm in this to do this at such a young age. Do you feel like they're overwhelmed working with some of these guys that they may see on TV or on the radio? No. The ones that are naturals that really want to do it come in with a base of knowledge and a passion and they just need tools. Like they just need to to learn the basics and and the do's and don'ts and and some of the, those mechanics. But um they come in more knowledgeable about sports than I am. Like they'll watch every NFL game. They'll watch sports center all the time. I mean, there's, they have fantasy teams, like they're really deep into it. You know, they're into like the stats part of it and the, and the fantasy value and, you know, collecting cards and you name it. Like they're, they're sports talk. They listen to a lot of sports talk, you know, so they hear opinions and they want to give their opinions. So we've done more of that in camp over time where we let them do sports talk shows we let them do like studio bantering type shows because they want to talk. Like they, they have a lot that they want to get out that they know about. And we just provide the forum and a little bit of coaching for them. Um, you know, we can't teach them about 
um, the history of baseball in one week. They have to dive in and watch a lot of baseball. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.